Thank you so much for joining our Gen Church Wa podcast. We are a community of everyday people committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus for generations to come. It's 2022. We have so many exciting events, gatherings, and opportunities for you around Generations Church. If you'd like to learn more about these opportunities, these events, these gatherings, head over to mygenerations.church to check them out. So what does it mean to be spiritual? How does followership of Jesus look in an era of postmodernism and deconstruction? We're getting back into our series on 1 Corinthians called Masterclass, where the Apostle Paul will help us navigate our cultural moment. Let's respond to the scripture and spirit together. Every four years, athletes, nations, commentators, analysts, judges, and spectators gather to watch the Olympics. Athletes and coaches work tirelessly to master one sport or another and compete for gold. Countless people watch on as the athletes have a singular focus in mind. To win, to podium, to medal for their country. But at some point, the athletes stop competing in the sport. They grow old, they retire, they move on. Maybe they're still adjacent with, as an analyst or a coach, but... They stop competing. The hopes of winning die out. For the life of the Christian, there's a life competition of sorts. There's direction. There's a resolve to follow Jesus. And that should never cease until Jesus returns or you pass through the doorway of death. The competition that we go on of sorts is one of life where our goal as followers of Jesus is to seek after Him, to push forward and spend time with Him, becoming like Him, learning from Him as the Master, to see change in ourselves, to see change in others, and to see change in our world. And see, we are seeking to learn mastery for all of life. So once again, welcome to Masterclass. We have made it all the way to chapter 10 of 1 uh, Corinthians. And chapter 10 nears the conclusion of Paul's discussion on whether or not Christians can attend barbecues hosted in the local temples and the adjacent issue, eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols. So if you've got a Bible and you're trying to follow along with us, uh, I'd encourage you to open up 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be in chapter 10 and chapters 8, 9 and 10 are this middle section discussion on food and this issue that the Corinthians wrote Paul about and said, hey, we've got some questions. We live in this time and this place in Corinth and we are following Jesus, trying to follow him well, do this to the best of our ability. And we're not sure how to interact with these meat sacrificed to idols. That was the way that they got meat back in the day. And they're wondering, wait, these gods are false. They're not true. So how should we respond? In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul establishes two principles. First, an idol really is nothing. And it was fine for the Corinthian Christians who understood this to act according to this knowledge. Idols, these are just things of wood and stone. They really don't have much power because God is the one true God. 
the Lord over all, the creator of heaven and earth. And his authority, his power is what holds the most sway. And you are bestowed with that authority and power because of the Holy Spirit and dwelling within you. Second, the Christians, for Christians, love is more important than knowledge. So even though I may know eating meat sacrificed to an idol is all right for myself, if it causes my brother or sister to stumble, I won't do it because it isn't the loving thing to do. And with that statement, Paul anticipates some pushback of the Corinthians. Therefore, he shares a personal illustration followed by a scriptural illustration as he works towards the deeper issue. So in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul showed how important it is for Christians to give up their rights, just as Paul gave up his right to be supported by his own preaching. So some of the Corinthian Christians must give up some of their right to eat meat sacrificed to idols based on the principle of love towards the weaker brother. Yes, Paul was willing to forego eating a really well done steak out of love. He was willing to give up certain things because he valued the person, the people in his life coming into a personal contact with Jesus and that relationship. And so there were certain rights and certain things that were barriers between that person and Jesus that maybe he puts there because it's not necessarily gospel issues. So he says, I'm willing to forego those rights, those preferences for the sake of someone else knowing Jesus. And in the end of chapter 9, Paul showed how a Christian must be willing to give up some things, even good things, for the sake of winning the race God has set before us. Running that race well is following Jesus well in all aspects of life and helping others do the same. Otherwise, we will become disqualified in the competition of the Christian life. And I'll elaborate on that here in a moment. Paul elaborates on the seriousness of the competition, not by looking forward, but by looking back to an example because the Corinthian Christians are to become what they are. Here's what he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the same spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. Paul briefly recounts some of the imagery about God's work in Israel's deliverance from Egypt. All Israel, when they were rescued out of Egypt, came through the Red Sea and saw God's incredible power and in holding up the walls of the sea so that they could cross over on dry ground. They saw God send the water back down on the Egyptian army in Exodus 14. This was not only an amazing demonstration of God's love and power, but also a picture of baptism by passing through water. All of Israel was identified with Moses, even as if by passing through water, as a Christian is identified with Jesus 
Christ. Same moment, that's the importance of baptism. Saying yes to Jesus, following him and experience his power and love and rescue from past domination. And all Israel was sustained by God's miraculous provision of food and drink during their time in the wilderness. This was a remarkable display of God's love and power for Israel. A prefiguring of the spiritual food and drink we receive at the Lord's table, communion. It's a powerful reminder of our attachment to Christ. And Paul will return to this attachment to Christ through communion in the coming weeks. We'll, we'll deal with that together in master class. But he starts to pick up on this image, the importance of these sacraments. See, Israel, even ancient Israel, had versions of these two Christian sacraments we receive to this day, baptism and communion. Now, some of you may be wondering why I'm choosing the word sacrament this morning. The word sacrament was used for the oath of allegiance that the soldier of a Roman legion took to their emperor. The early Christians considered communion and baptism to be an oath of allegiance unto Jesus Christ. Through these, they were being reminded that they were plugged into God. Amen. Baptism and communion. Powerful images to let us know that we have access to God and that we can be plugged into God to live life under His authority and power. Free to live with His power and grace. Know that we are loved and have the assurance that He has provided a way in Christ. But what's amazing is this is not the end of the wilderness story. Because see, for some never made it to the promised land. They started on the journey with God, with others. But they didn't all make it. Despite all these blessings and spiritual privileges, the Israelites in the wilderness held on to the fears in the past rather than embrace the future God had for them. Their past, even how horrific it was, held greater attachment in their hearts than the work of God presently in their lives. In light of all the blessing and presence and rescue of God, gratitude should have been more pleasing, should have been the proper response to God. But there were tugs at their hearts. There were tangible things that they could go back to, that they knew how to manipulate, that they knew how to abide by. They knew how that system worked. It was took greater faith. It took greater gratitude to respond and step with God out of enslavement in Egypt and into the journey of going to the promised land with God. And it held greater attachment in their hearts. They were not able to stay with God. And it said they died in the wilderness. When the going got tough, their loyalties were tested. And they opted for what they knew instead of what God promised. So oftentimes, we know something to be true. That's the way the world works. This is the way it worked in my past. Of course, this is how it's going to work in my future. And so often, we pit our past experience. Again, past experiences aren't bad. Learning things from our own past and our own histories aren't bad. Learning things from our own stories aren't bad. But in the moment, 
when the whispers start, when the voices come around, when, when the past experiences say, this is how it should be or this is the way the world should work, we have a choice to either operate within the system of how things have always been or step into a beautiful future that God has promised, which is life lived in the Spirit with others, heading towards becoming more like Jesus, getting our full humanity back. But in doing so, rather than opting for what they knew, rather than what God promised, they never entered the promised land, but died in the wilderness instead. And Paul makes this point. And his point is intended to hit hard. The Corinthians were probably taking all sorts of liberties, like feasting in pagan temples, stumbling their brothers, thinking that they were safe because of the past blessings and spiritual experiences especially baptism and communion. So Paul warns them to beware, because just as Israel was blessed and had spiritual experiences, they still perished. And some of the Corinthian Christians might also. And he continues, Now these things took place as examples for us, so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. They were about having a great time because that's what they knew. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. In a single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. And don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. We can and should learn from Israel's failure in the wilderness. How did Israel fail? Back in the summer, we took a look at the Exodus story and we called it Road Trip. God's people on the move where we look through the book of Numbers and we hear some of these stories that Paul is alluding to here. You know, if you aren't familiar with the journey to the promised land, you can read this in Exodus and Numbers um, or go back and just rewatch our series. Maybe you need something to binge. Go back and rewatch our road trip series. It was a little fun series that we talked about and used all kinds of imagery. But just like any road trip, when the Israelites were on the way to the promised land, they complained. It was difficult. And at the end of the day, it revealed their hearts. And when challenges came, when conflict arose, when the days were difficult and long, how they really felt came out. What they really held dear came out of their mouths, like your dinner after food poisoning. They failed and that they could not say no to their desires. They couldn't say no. They went back to what they knew. They went back to what they thought was good and right, settling for themselves what was good and right in their own minds, and what they could see and experience. All the while, God's presence in the cloud, in parting the Red Sea, was right before their eyes. How forgetful they were were how forgetful are we the corinthian christians who insisted on eating meat sacrificed to idols even though 
they did lead other Christians into sin, just couldn't say no either. They said, the meat is so good. It's such a bargain. They couldn't say no out of the... They couldn't say no. I mean, how many times do we, we, we self-justify? We, we rationalize in our own head. We've got our list of logic that seems so right and good. But what happens is we are so consumed with ourselves and what we think is right that we miss the work that God is doing in our life, in our church, and in our world. And all Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to do is maybe in this case and maybe in others, say no. I grew up when it was, I was thinking in elementary school and it was like they, they trot out all the dare you know, like paraphernalia, and it was like, just say no to drugs, and it was like, just say no. But what happens is I think sometimes we lose kind of that, that statement as we get older, not necessarily to drugs, but to ourselves. We say, I can't help but say yes. I should say yes. I'm not allowed to say no, or I just, if I'm saying no, I'm being untrue to myself and who I am. But what happens is if we're unable to say no, take thoughts captive in our minds, then in fact we may miss the voice of the Holy Spirit and the proper response that actually leads to a more full, healthy, and better life than when we simply say yes instead of saying no. See, the same issue is causing trouble with the Corinthian Christians. They could not say no out of love for God or love for brother because the goal is not to think about yourself, but to think about your brother and sister in Christ. And they will not yield their right to eat meat sacrificed to idols for the sake of another sibling in Christ. Some of the Corinthian Christians not only got too close in their association with idols, they also made an idol out of their own knowledge and their own rights. How oftentimes do things we are passionate about slip from being passions to being God's? Paul's warning stands. If it happened to Israel, it can happen to you. Be on guard. Your passions and your preferences may slip from being things that you care deeply about to becoming the thing that you think is ultimate and that you care most about, thus replacing the place of God in your heart and in your life. They had an inability to process the shame that they could be wrong in their approach. See, oftentimes we don't say no to ourselves or even say no to other circumstances and situations is because we are fearful and concerned. We have an inability to process the shame that we might feel by our actions, our past, present, or future. See, every time we self-justify, we always do more harm than good because we are attempting to define right and wrong in our own mind. Even if we use Scripture in our justification, we're attempting to set ourselves up as both the competitor and the judge, thus demonstrating how selfish we really are. And Paul wants them to know that it reflects a selfish, self-focused heart, which is the kind of heart God destroyed amongst the Israelites in the wilderness. 
may have been a relatively small symptom, but it was a symptom of a much greater and dangerous disease. Pride. Elevating yourself to where you are both the competitor, one who is running the race, race with God, with others, to being the one who stands back on the sideline and says, oh, they're in first, they're in second, they're in third. They win, they lose. Brothers and sisters, we are running the race together. Let us run well. Let us wrap our arms around each other and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. I think of a couple weeks ago when Mia was in her soccer um, kind of training thing that she was doing. She would get out really far ahead and she was running really fast and then she noticed, I'm not sure I see anybody around me and started to look back and then what happens is everyone else caught her. What happens in our life is when the moment that we start to look around at where is everybody else and don't keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep fixed on the long haul, the journey of following Him with all of our life for our whole life and start to look around at others and evaluating where they are at in their race is the moment that we are prone and have the potential to stumble and fall. Paul says that these things happen to them as examples, referring back to the Israelites as they were written in our, for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages has come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear, but with temptation he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. Since we are those upon whom the ends of the age have come, we can and should take warning about the bad example of Israel. And we have greater responsibility because we can learn from Israel's mistakes. For the Corinthian Christians to resist the temptation or the pull, the gut response that says, go this way rather than with God. To be selfish and self-focused, they must first understand that they are vulnerable. The one who thinks he stands will not stay on guard against temptation, so he may easily fall. Temptation works like rocks on a harbor. When the tide is low, everybody sees the danger and avoids it. But Satan's strategy in temptation is to raise the tide, to cover over the dangers of temptation. Then he likes to crash upon you the covered rocks. It looks safe. While the danger lies below. You and I are vulnerable. We're vulnerable. Temptation is a means of determining attachment. When we are reminded that to be tempted is not sin, but to entertain temptation or surrender to temptation is sin. The consequences of sin wreak havoc on our lives and the lives of those around us. Even when we bear temptation, Satan often condemns us for being tempted. But that's the condemnation from Satan the Christian does not need to accept. Satan weaponizes toxic shame. Toxic shame communicates the message, you are bad. The message does not invite you out of your badness. It leaves you in shame with no solution to help. That stands in stark contrast to the ways of God. He offers you a way out. He offers you a way through. He offers you support when you need it most. 
Others before you have found strength in the Lord to overcome the same temptation and worse, so you can be victorious. It's the strength of Jesus, not in your own strength, not in your own wisdom, not in your knowledge. We fight temptation with Jesus' power. In understanding who we are in Christ, because of Christ, we can be honest about the temptation we face. We are vulnerable. You, me, us. We are vulnerable. But it is not without hope or help. God has promised to supervise all temptation that comes at us through the world, the flesh or the devil. He promises to limit it according to our capability to endure it, according to our capability as we rely on him. Whatever knowledge you have of Jesus and the work of of his love in your life, just even if it's a little bit of knowledge, is enough capability to see you through temptation. He will not give you more than you can bear. And it's not to mean that the temptation isn't great or insurmountable or that the road isn't difficult. But he's saying, in my love, whatever knowledge of my love that you have is lifeline enough, is direction enough, is a secure enough pathway to help you navigate what's next. He promises to limit it according to our capability to endure it. Rely on Him, not on ourselves. With temptation, we also make a way of escape. God has promised not to only limit our temptation, but to provide a way of escape. This way of escape isn't the same as mere relief, though, from the pressure of temptation, which some people find by giving in to temptation. If I just do it, I won't feel guilty or shame or I won't feel awkward or I, I'll fit in with everybody else. There's often a wrong way to relieve a temptation and, we'll also, and we will often face the same temptation over and over again until we show Satan and our flesh that we are able to bear it. Amen. See, following Jesus is a lifelong journey. And when we pray for patience, when we pray for joy, when we pray for God, help me know that my family loves and supports. Sometimes we go through things so that God can prove himself and God's people can prove themselves true to be followers and fixed on him, to rally around each other and provide that way of support. So the things we go through or for us to grow greater attachment and grow greater connection with God while also support each other along the way. See, Barclay says that the word, the way of escape here, is really like a mountain pass with the idea of an army being surrounded by the enemy, then suddenly seeing an escape route to, to safety. Like a mountain pass, the way of escape isn't necessarily an easy way. The way of escape does not lead us to a place where we escape all temptation. That's heaven alone. The way of escape leads us to a place where we may be able to bear it, where we can acknowledge it, where we can identify it. Others can identify it in us. We can share it with others and we can say, let's tackle this thing together. The race you run is not alone. Meaning you can metabolize your wrongdoing and move forward. So often we give in to temptation 
because we're unable to stomach the responsibility and the choice of what following Jesus on the way through, what the way of escape leads us to. And this is what God was doing for the Israelites in the wilderness and what Paul is doing here. He's saying, God is saying, you are my loved children and you have stopped acting like yourself. Wake up. Paul begins much of his letter with who they are. Temples, dwelling places of God, cleansed. The people of God moving with God. And he's saying, live that reality. So when you step out of the path, you can freely go. Yeah, I missed up. I was wrong. I did it. Cool, let's get back on the path. It rolls off your back like a water rolls off the back of a duck. It's no big deal. Because you're not internalizing your shame. You recognize that that is not true to who you are. You are who Christ says you are. Therefore, you are brought back into alignment and following God. Which means, in doing this well with God and with others, when you run with God with others, you must then flee from idolatry. What should I do? Paul's conclusion about them not eating in the temples, our love of brother and personal purity of fleeing from idolatry. Though the Corinthians may have liberty to buy meat at the pagan temple, butcher shop, and prepare it in their homes, they should flee from idolatry in regards to the restaurant of the pagan temple. Paul's point may seem obscure to us, but it was plain in some in the ancient culture. Just as the Christian practice of communion speaks of unity and fellowship with Jesus, these pagan banquets given in honor of idols spoke of unity with demons who took advantage of misdirected worship. To eat at a pagan temple banquet was to have fellowship at the altar of idols. The Corinthians thought, since an idol is not real, it doesn't matter what we eat. It doesn't matter where we eat. But Paul answers by agreeing that an idol is in itself nothing, but now explains that demons take advantage of man's ignorant and self-serving worship. Your flesh, Satan, wants to trick you, wants to maneuver around you so that you worship yourself and you prop yourself up rather than follow God and worship Him. The Christian... Corinthians thought, as long as we participate in the Lord's table, we are safe in Him. But Paul answers that they disgrace the Lord's table when they fellowship with the idols. But it doesn't matter that the Corinthians didn't intend to worship demons at these heathen feasts in the pagan temples. But if a man puts his hand into the fire, it doesn't matter if he intends to burn himself or not. He is burned just the same. Paul's point is, do you think you are wise enough to compete for the eternal prize and be the judge of the competition? Do you think yourself smart enough, wise enough, skilled enough, good enough, strong enough to both compete and judge? Unfortunately, our lives more often than we would like answer that question for us with yes. We think of ourselves more higher than we ought. In fact, I would say we actually think of ourselves less than we ought. Because when we think of ourselves rightly through the way that God sees us, we will recognize that when we take matters into our own eyes and hands, we're actually stepping out of character with who God says we are. See, if you really intend to flee from idolatry, then we must first name our idols. What is an idol? It is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give 
you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. And there are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something. But perhaps the best one is worship. What truly lessens our attachment to those lesser idols is running towards God. And this morning, my hope is that we can loosen the grip of what is on your heart. Loosen the grip of things that we think are ultimate things that are holding on to our heart and replace it with Jesus. In doing so, they may even be a good thing and they can be truly enjoyed once again. So the band's going to come up. Band, go ahead and start to make your way up here. And we're going to sing some songs. And with music, it aids us in worship. Telling, uh, telling us and telling God who He is and who He is to us. To remind us ourselves to strengthen our attachments with Him. That is why we sing. That is why we worship to speak. It's because we strengthen our attachments with God and with each other and lessen the attachments on other things. So I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we're going to go ahead and stand. So why don't you all just go ahead and stand with me? God, you are good, and we come to you right now, surrendering all things to you. God, there are things that have our hearts, that grip our hearts. We want to surrender those to you right now. We want to turn them over to you. We want to say yes to you and no to those things. We want to put them in proper perspective. Help us do that as we sing these songs. Help us to identify what is right and what is true, what is lovely, what is beautiful. You are those things. Take us where you want us. Lead us where we need to go. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.